We are starting a new series today titled This Changes Everything in which we look at uh, the reality and the promise of how the cross of Christ and the resurrection that conquered the grave changes everything for us. That, that's our belief that that is the seminal event in all of history. That Christ went to the cross for our sins. He paid for them all. And then He came victoriously over the grave. He resurrected from the grave to justify our confident belief in Him. And our belief is that that, that has the power, those two events, to change the way we see ourselves, to change the way we see God, change the way we understand how God sees us. And in this series, we'll be talking about those things, how uh, God has changed our identity. And we begin to understand more and more, particularly in the book of Romans chapter 8, what our new identity is in Him. We'll be spending these six weeks in Romans 7 and 8. Today's mostly in Romans 7. You can turn there with me now. But I'm going to begin, though, this morning, well, with a little illustration, a little story. In our old home, the place that we lived before moving here to Kearney, we uh, had a little home in a neighborhood where the houses were packed together like sardines. Nothing like Kearney in that way. And uh, we had these big, beautiful trees around the perimeter of our little downtown property. And uh, it was necessary to have those trees so you could have a little bit of privacy from others. Good fences make good neighbors, right? Nice, big, beautiful trees make for good neighbors. And uh, those trees were so great because we had this small backyard, but they provided shade across the entire backyard. So we would go and play soccer together as a family or football together as a family in that backyard. About six or seven years ago, we noticed these uh, stripes of black on each of these elm trees. And in addition to these stripes of black on the branches, we noticed the, the leaves were being riddled with holes like Swiss cheese and uh, the leaves were getting warts on them. You ever get those on your trees? They're so disgusting. Ugh. But they're full of these warts, and then one of the trees had this nasty fungus coming from it, like this liquid just emitting out of it, and I made Susie go touch it and inspect it. And uh, <laughs> I didn't actually do that, but it's good sermon stuff. Um, then we, we called an arborist and, and asked an expert to come in and look at the trees, and, and he examined the trees and said, I think these can be treated and taken care of, and, and so we trimmed the branches and cut off some of the dead branches, and then went into the roots. You got to take care of the branches, but more importantly, you got to take the roots, right? You got to take care of the roots of your life. So he went into the branches, and then he went into the roots, and he uh, injected these uh, nutrients into the roots of both trees. And we hoped that the trees would be okay. The next year came, and uh, one of the elm trees was doing really well. It still had those black marks, and some of the branches needed to be trimmed again, but it looked like it was returning to health. But the other one still had that nasty fungus cut coming from it, and then the, uh, the, the leaves got more and more sparse. And then same thing in the next year, and the next year. And each year, remember this, each year we were paying someone to come in and treat these roots. We did it for about five or six years until eventually... After five or six years of this, I called another arborist, which, you know, a smart man would have done three years before. But I've been paying for it for five or six years, called another arborist, and he comes in and he says, no, no, that, that tree is dead. It's lifeless. It's hopeless. There's a few leaves on it, but it's dead. There's, there's no shot at saving that tree. And so this big, beautiful elm tree, probably 40 feet tall and 60 years old, became 
an inglorious stump there in our backyard. The other tree was treated, and we continued to trim it and care for the branches, and it remained healthy. But I oftentimes thought, I think about those two trees almost as a model of my life at different times. That sometimes I'm kind of like that healthy tree, that I need some nutrients, I need some treatment, I need the branches trimmed, and also I need the root to be cared for, and if all of that happens, I can get healthy again. I can produce that which God intends for me to produce. But at other times, I kind of feel like that dead elm tree, that no matter how much is put into me, there are just certain times, though, that I feel like I'm not doing all that God has intended for me, and I'm not fulfilling the purpose that God has for me, like that elm tree wasn't fulfilling the purpose that God had for it. Can you relate to this? Which of those trees would you relate to today? Some of us might feel like we're that dead tree that tries we might, no matter how much we are treated, we can't seem to produce what we wish to produce. And others of us know that we're bruised and we're scarred. But underneath it all, we've gotten healthy and we're starting to produce the fruit that God would want from us. Seems like the Apostle Paul's wrestling through that kind of question as we open to Romans chapter 7. As you open there, you, you got to remember, this is every bit God's man. The Apostle Paul is the church planter of the Mediterranean world. He's uh, perhaps the greatest leader of the early church history. And uh, he is conveying some of his struggle, even in spite of the fact that he belongs to Christ. And what I'd like to encourage you to do over these next six weeks is read Romans 7 and 8 every single week. Read them back to back. As you experience Paul's struggle, which mirrors our struggle, and then the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And pull out your highlighter or your pen or however you like to mark up in your Bible or your phone or however you do it is just fine. I personally love to have an actual physical Bible that's like a companion for me that I could see the notes, of, see the, the points of growth as I read through something years ago and read through it again to today. But we're going to read that this morning, a longer passage of Scripture from Romans 7, starting at verse 14 as Paul articulates the struggle that many of us feel as well. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You keeping up with all this? Okay, you following Paul here? <laughs> so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, in conclusion, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And do me a favor, raise your hand with me if you can identify with that at all. Okay? Every hand should be raised at this time. Okay? If you're not raising your hand, this is an indication that you need to raise your hand. This is a universal part of our human existence, that we delight to do what is right, and yet there are times that we just can't seem to pull it off, and we lack a consistency that we need to produce that which we know we should. At times we delight in God's word, Paul's saying. It's like honey to the tongue. It's like bread to the soul. And we want to do it, and we do do it. But then there are other times, even though we know it's honey to the tongue and bread to the soul, we fail to follow through on our best intentions. And it's like, okay, I know I need to go this way, but I want to go this way, and so it's almost like a hand over fist that I have to force myself to go in the direction that I should be going. Lord Jesus, would you please help me even though I know I shouldn't go down this path again. I've done it over and over again. Please help me to go in the direction that I should go. And that's the ongoing struggle of the Christian who's been saved by God to the uttermost, who's been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells within us. We have been forgiven, but even so we have this body of flesh and these old experiences and the war with the world and there are times that we still feel like we are fighting against the flesh and the world and the enemy himself. Paul says that when we embrace Christ we get this new start spiritually but here he is, he is saying, he's one of the most religious men on the planet and he's saying I do not do what I want to do and I do the very thing that I hate. He's talking here about two different kinds of sin, two different kinds of failure. One is a sin of omission, and the other one is a sin of commission. A sin of omission is, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. I omit to do it. It's, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbors, but, but Adrian, you don't know my neighbors. It's, I know I'm supposed to be generous with all that God has given me, but I really love my money, and I don't want to give it to anyone else, or I don't want to give it to the church. I don't want to give it to what God wants done in the world. I know I ought to, but, but I can't. It's a sin of omission. Sin of commission is, I know I shouldn't be gossiping, so why do I keep on gossiping about that coworker? It's... I know I shouldn't be lying. Why did I take yet another chance to say that white lie? Why did I try to save face once again with that little lie? I know I shouldn't do this, but yet I do this. Sins of omission and sins of commission. And and again, this is the Apostle Paul who is the church leader in the Mediterranean world, one of the most religious men on the planet, and he says, I don't do what I ought to do. I do the very thing that I shouldn't do. We don't know what that is specifically for the Apostle Paul. We don't know what his specific area of temptation. But I, for one, am so very grateful that he, in this almost embarrassing way, admits, he gives this self-exposure, if you will, that I still struggle. Aren't you grateful for that? 
I, I mean, someone that's this great of a leader saying, I still struggle. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not going to be Mr. Baloney Man. I'm going to be honest. I still struggle. You see, honesty, wherever you are, is the beginning of holiness. You're not ever going to reach more holiness in God if you don't choose to be honest with God and honest with a few other people. The first step to your healing, wherever you may be today, is honesty. I'm looking at Brad Brandt right now, and I think about what we got going on Monday evenings here at 6.30, a wonderful ministry called R3, Redeemed, Restored, Renewed. And that's a ministry that meets every Monday night at 6.30 over in the cafe area for those who are struggling with various habits or hang-ups or addictions. They come together and they're honest with each other. Here's the real me. Take the mask off. Here's the real me. I am struggling. And I don't know about you, I want to be a part of a church where it's okay to bring the real me to the table. Sometimes we go to church just to understand that we're not the only one that's struggling. Can I get an amen? Sometimes when we come to church, we realize we are not the only one. So if you're struggling with some addiction or hang-up, I encourage you to come. 6.30 on Monday night to R3. Maybe you're going through divorce. We have a divorce care ministry on Monday night. We have a ministry for single moms. We have a grief share ministry for those who have gone through grief. We want people to know in whatever area of weakness, whatever struggle they might be going through right now, they matter to God, they matter to us. But this battle is what still exists within every single Christian. We've been given a new nature in Christ, but simultaneously we fight against the old fleshly nature. It's almost like there's two engines underneath the trunk. Two engines underneath the hood, is what I should say. Two engines underneath the hood. You know, there's one engine underneath this hood that says, ooh, I want to go to Vegas. And there's another engine underneath the hood that says, no, I want to go to Jerusalem. You hear what I'm saying? Two different engines underneath the same hood. And we have to fight against both of these. But in the end, what Paul is going to say here in Romans 7 and 8 is even though there's two engines underneath the hood, your fundamental identity, if you are in Christ, is more like that healthy elm tree that I described. You may have some bruises, you may have some scars, there may be some branches that need some trimming, but if you come to Christ, the roots are now healthy. The roots are now healthy in Him. Here's the big idea that I hope you get out of these next six weeks. We are both sinner and saint at the same time. But mostly, my friends, we're saints. You're a sinner still. You're still going to struggle with sin. You're still going to have a nature that points you towards sin. You're a saint because you're forgiven by God. But mostly what you are is a saint. Let me do a little bit of theology with you this morning. Christians across the centuries have debated on what exactly happens in us when we embrace the resurrected Christ. What should we expect when we begin to grow with Christ? And there's been two uh, polls that, um, that different Christians have taken, two different approaches, and I'm going to aim for the middle here. But some have focused on the fact that we are sinners that are saved by grace, but we are still utterly depraved. And from this theological camp, you'll frequently hear them quote Jeremiah 17.9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can tame it? Who has a chance to fight against the heart of men and women that is deceitful and wicked? And those who follow this train of thought are oftentimes led by a man named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a great Protestant reformer. And Martin Luther said that when the Christian becomes a new believer, they're baptized by Christ, they're brought into the family of God, baptized by His Spirit, really the only thing that changes in them is forgiveness. God sees them and he says, you are now justified and made right in my sight and I have poured the blood of Christ over you. There's no change internally, but I poured the blood of Christ over, over you such that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore, he sees the blood of Christ. That's what Martin Luther would say. He went so far as to use this word picture to visualize it for us that the newly baptized Christian is a snow-covered dung heap. You're welcome. <laughs> Just what you want when you came to church this morning, right? To hear that. Okay, that, that's what he says, that we are a snow-covered dung heap. We are sinners through and through. That's all we are. I will sin. There's nothing I can do about it. Let's go eat worms. Okay, the opposite direction says no, no, no. Something much more than that has happened. It's more than a blanket of snow over a dung heap. It's that God has changed us on the inside. And on the other side of the pendulum, though there have been many who have pointed to a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Old things have passed, new things are now here. You're a new creation, born anew. And those who have uh, followed this way of thinking, oftentimes they'll look at that verse and then have followed the great awakening leader, John Wesley. And John Wesley and many of his followers said, no, it's not that you've just had a blanket of snow over dung. God has actually changed you so much that you should expect to be able to move toward perfection. And Wesley says this, it is thus that we wait for entire sanctification for complete sanctification, for a full salvation from all our sins, from pride, self-will, anger, and unbelief, on unto perfection. All the way to perfection. And you know, that sounds a whole lot better than Martin Luther's explanation. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be characterized by that than as a dung heap. But I just got to ask, how's that going for you? I mean, how's this whole perfection working out for you? For me, not too well. I'd ask those who've been Christians 10, 20, 30, 40 years, are you close to perfection yet? I've been a Christian for 21 years, and I'm more aware of my sinfulness now than I've ever been. I know I'm nowhere near perfection. No, in all likelihood, we are going to continue to struggle with the old nature that remains in us. We are still sinners. But after we come to Christ, we receive the grace of God, which helps us every day and helps us to grow into this new reality that we are saints. So Paul says here in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you can imagine as he says this, he's just despairing. But I, I think it's probably wise for all of us from time to time to recognize that this is where we should be. 
Just like Paul. There's no way that I can deliver myself. There's no way that I can pull myself up by my moral bootstraps and do what I ought to do every day by trying harder. Someone needs to rescue us. So who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, he's calling on us to receive the grace of Christ each and every day. That it's not enough to say, I believed on Christ and I was forgiven by him back in 2015. I really don't need to ask for much forgiveness today. That won't do. It's not enough to say that I became a Christian back when I was 12 years old. I've already been saved. No, he saved you once a long time ago. He's saving you again today. He'll need to save you again tomorrow, so to speak. Each and every day we are needy for the gospel of Christ. Each and every day we need to lean into Jesus to receive his grace because each and every day we still struggle with that old sin nature. It's really easy, well, when you hear a message like this on the nature of sin to kind of elbow the spouse sitting next to you. Are you listening to this? I hope you're hearing this, honey. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is a message for every one of us. It's part of our narrative that each and every one of us struggles each day and each and every one of us needs the grace of Jesus every day. It's not a narrative for prisoners and pimps and prostitutes and politicians. It's a narrative for every one of us because part of our identity is to be needy for Christ every day. That's why I'm, I, I always want to be a preacher that says we need to have time with the Lord every day. You can't rely on Sunday morning alone. There has to be time with him, even if it's just five or ten minutes studying a single chapter, 10, 15 minutes looking at a single chapter and praying through that each and every day. And it'll occur in fits and starts as we trust in Christ that we'll see growth. But there's this battle that is waging within all of us that we are needy for the grace of Christ. Now, I want to encourage you to reframe the way you think about our need. Many of us read a passage like this and read the different passages about sin and they think the basic human need is about our morality. Do this and don't do that. I actually think that the basic human need is to believe this and not that. The battle is for who we will believe. Do we believe in ourselves or do we believe in Christ? Do we abide in ourselves or do we abide in Christ every day? That's really the battle. The sinner walks in unbelief, and the sinner chooses to abide in self. And that's the natural way for all of us, that we walk in unbelief, we choose to abide in self, and we go by that age-old saying made famous by Frank Sinatra, I will do it my way. You know? That's what we go by. I'm going to figure it out for myself, and I'm going to do it my way. It's the nature of unbelief. I'm going to abide in self. Pull myself up by my moral bootstraps. But the saint says, no, I'm going to walk in belief in Jesus Christ as my Savior, acknowledging my need for him each and every day and choosing to abide in him every day because my best efforts will never be good enough. And so it's the saint who goes before God each day and says, Lord Jesus, would you please help me? I heard one pastor put it this way as he was counseling a man who was struggling with pornography. 
And the man kept on looking at things that he shouldn't look at. And the pastor said, do you bring Jesus into that centerfold? He said, are you crazy? Why would I ever do that? Well, because he's already there with you. He dwells within you. And so ask for his help right in the middle of that temptation. Or do you bring Jesus into that temptation to lie? Do you bring Jesus into that temptation to gossip? Because he offers us grace for this very moment, for today. This is the nature of our Lord, not just for yesterday, not just for eternity, for today. This is such a wonderful corrective for us because we have a tendency to think of me and my sin over here and Jesus over here looking down at me and my sin. Anyone else? I have this tendency to look at me and my sin right here and Jesus notices, oh, Adrian, you fool. How could you ever do that? That's not it at all. What's going on is here's me and my sin and here's Jesus right with me. I was bought with the price of Christ. I've been baptized well with the Holy Spirit. Christ is with me. And so he is available to help me in that temptation right at our point of need. He's available to us. So we have something far better than do this and don't do that. We have belief in the living God who is there for us right now. That's why Paul concludes this chapter of despair by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what does he say? Oh, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, to stick with the agricultural analogy is what we want here is this daily abiding in Christ. Remember John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the, the branches. And a branch apart from the vine can do what? A branch apart from the vine can do nothing. And so we lean into the vine each and every day. We get our sap from the vine. We get our hope from the gospel. We get our power to overcome temptation from the gospel of Christ. We get our strength through the Holy Spirit. That's the nourishment that enables the branches, that's you and me, to follow Him each and every day. Now we feel this tension with Christ. We feel this tension with the Apostle Paul as he expresses his own battle of belief and unbelief. And then he says, God will rescue me. I'm not complete, but neither am I condemned because I'm in Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know, Paul is so interesting because he's known as this bold lion who's this great defender of the faith. He's a great theologian. But there are some 200 times in his letters that he uses the phrase in Christ or with Christ. The very centerpiece of Paul's doctrine is this. It's a doctrine called union with Christ. The center of his writings is a relationship with God. This bold lion of a man, this great defender of the faith, the very centerpiece of his writings is you are invited to a relationship with God. You are invited to union with Christ. And because he is with you, you can have more and more power, increasing power over the battle with the flesh. 
Again, he notes this some 200 different times that we are with Christ, uh, that we are in Christ. And so I want to bring to note about 150 of them right now. Would you join me? Anyone? Okay. Just three or four. We're both sinners and saints at the same time, but mostly we're saints. Listen to these. Colossians 1.27. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ now lives in you, and he is your hope of glory. Christ in you, your hope of glory, he dwells inside of you. Or how about Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live in the body by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Do you realize that's who you are? That Christ now dwells inside of you? Do you believe that? I mean, this is the very centerpiece of who we are. Christ dwells within us. The old self is crucified. The new self has been renewed. Jesus dwells within us and gives us a heart of flesh. I've been crucified with Christ, the old sinner. No, that's not the centerpiece of who I am anymore. That's not the centerpiece of who you are anymore. Friends, this is so critical to remind ourselves of these truths because this does a cognitive therapy, if you will, on our minds. If you think of yourself only as a sinner, you will say, well, what do you expect? Of course I sinned. What do you expect? But if you think of yourself as one in whom Christ dwells, you'll have higher expectations and you'll go to the Lord who dwells within you. I'd be as bold to say that whatever Jesus says is true about you, that's what's true. That's what's true. It's not what you think about yourself. It's what Jesus says about you. So you may think of yourself right now as fundamentally an adulterer or fundamentally a con, a convict, fundamentally a liar, Fundamentally, someone who's characterized by all of these sins that other people know you as, but that is not fundamentally what you are to God. What you fundamentally are to God is one who's been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. He now dwells in you. You are a saint of God most high. You are in Christ. This, to get into our mind, moves us from failure to freedom, changes what we think about self as we understand what God really thinks about us, this has the capacity to change everything. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here's how Jesus put it. As he's preparing to leave earth, and he's preparing his disciples for his death and his resurrection, and he tells them, do not worry, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, I will send my spirit to come and be with you, and he says this, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Christ Jesus himself says this about you, you are in me, and I am in you. The promise of the resurrection is Christ rises us, he renews us, and then he dwells in us now and forevermore, such that the only proper conclusion is this, there is no condemnation for you. 
There is no condemnation for me. There is no condemnation for anyone that you know who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that you receive these truths, that you allow these to sink into your soul, that they would change your mind, change the way you think God thinks of you. And as they do, I've found that self-hatred has no place. Self-loathing has no place because we understand that we are sons and daughters of God. Would you give thanks with me? Father in heaven, thank you that you have rescued us from death. You have rescued us from the slavery of sin. You have rescued us from failure. And you have brought us into the freedom of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Lord, I confess to you that it's so easy in this world to identify myself with what other people think about me. It's so easy in this world to identify myself with my failures. I just admit to you, Lord Jesus, that I have a really, really hyperactive conscience. And uh, I'm aware of the times that I've been judgmental, even this past week. I'm aware of the times that I've been greedy or stingy. Where are the times that I've wanted to follow you and love my neighbor, but I've missed out on those opportunities to do so? So all I can do is look at the cross and ask you to forgive me. And I thank you, Jesus, that because of what you did on Good Friday, because of what you did on Easter Sunday, that is not the essence of who I am anymore. So I receive your forgiveness. Pray for my friends in this room who are perhaps wrestling with some area of struggle of their own. Maybe they're wrestling in their families and they got some relational heartache right now. And they feel like a failure. The truth is, if you've confessed Christ Jesus as Savior, you belong to God. You've been bought with a price. The old you has been crucified. Christ now dwells in you not an orphan any longer. The Spirit is in you. You're His saint. Saint of God Most High. Perhaps there would be some in this room who have never actually bent their knee to Jesus. And the hard word of Scripture is if you've never bent your knee to Christ, you are seen as a sinner. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus willingly died for you as well. So whatever it is you feel that has characterized you in the past, however people have pegged you as something, whatever sins or failures that you've had, those need not define you any longer. You can turn to Christ and know that He loves you and forgives you now and forevermore. You can simply say to Him, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Lord Jesus, I believe in you as Savior. 
I trust you as Lord. I desire to obey you and follow you. Would you renew me from the inside out starting today? And the promise you can count on is that he will. It can't be a little said faith. It can't be a nominal faith that you just want to believe in Jesus on Sunday and then do what you want on Monday morning. That won't do it. It's got to be a real faith. If you're in that place of just doing what you want the rest of the week, living for God on Sunday, you, you got to confess that. You got to repent. You got to turn to Him. Otherwise, there will be no renewal. There will be no victory. Jesus loves you. He desires to, meet, to move you today from failure to freedom through the cross and through the victory of Easter Sunday he can change your everything